Um, at our, I can't remember if it was our last board meeting or maybe two board meetings ago, John uh, put out there that he wanted to have one of the elders or deacons um, speak tonight on a Sunday night. And um, I volunteered. And it's one of those things where I volunteered and then I thought, oh, what did I do? <laughs> but that's okay. Um, John didn't give me really any direction on, on what he thought I should speak on. So I thought, I'm going to speak on my favorite book, which is First Peter. And if you were to ask me, Joel, why is First Peter your favorite book? And I would say, I don't know. Probably because it has my favorite seven verses in the Bible. That's it. I, 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 to be honest, I've not studied First Peter in depth other than the first seven or nine verses of this book, which I've, I've memorized several times. And the only reason they're my favorite verses is that two of those verses are my grandpa's favorite verses. I was out with breakfast uh, with him um, several years ago, and I just asked him the question, like, Grandpa, what are your favorite verses? And he said, First Peter 1, 8, and 9. Um, Though you've not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. I was like, all right, if those verses are good enough for Grandpa, they're good enough for me. And so I really, I treasure those verses because my grandpa treasures those verses, and he's close to 90. And, um, and so that's why I'm picking First Peter. And I'll be honest, as I, uh, the more, so tonight I'm going to speak on First Peter 1, verses 1 through 9. And to be honest, the more that I studied this, the more that I sort of scraped away the layers, the more I tried to walk through each verse and every phrase and every word, and, and the more I realized, wow, there is a lot going on in this first part of First Peter. And, um, and so this afternoon, I was, was typing stuff up, and I was just sitting there sighing, like, ah, I started to get intimidated by it a little bit. So... Um, there is more going on in this part of First Peter than I think I have the chops to really chew through. So I'm going to do my best. The way this is going to go is I'm going to read the passage, and then I'm just going to start at the top. We're going to work through with some observations and notes, and um, we'll go from there. Before I read this piece, um, just a brief overview of the book of First Peter. Um, it's a really neat book, and... Um, I got the title slide, Where There's Christ, There's Hope, um, which is a chapter heading I stole from a book by Warren Wearsby that he wrote as sort of a summary book on 1 Peter. And I like that. That's a really good summary of the book of 1 Peter. Um, the first third of the book, um, Peter talks to and expounds on, on the idea of salvation, salvation in Christ alone. In the middle third, uh, Peter talks about um, the idea of submission, which is so submission to the government, submission to your wife, submission to your husband, submission as a worker to your employer. And in the back, a uh, third of the book, and really seasoned throughout, Peter talks about suffering, um, the trials and hardships that we encounter in our daily walk. Um, and he doesn't, um, these are not necessarily separate and distinct subjects. Everything flows through with the common theme of God's grace enabling us to find salvation, to submit to each other, to endure suffering. And we get that grace when we believe in Christ. Hence the title, Where There's Christ, There's Hope. 
The key verse of the book, I think, is 1 Peter 5.10. Peter writes, And after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who's called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. So where there's Christ, there's hope. Another observation that I have of this book, and I'm no uh, literary expert, um, is that it is extremely Jesus-saturated. And um, that's not to say that the rest of the epistles or the letters or the gospels aren't Jesus-saturated. It's that um, when I read a book or a letter by Paul, I get the impression, um, so first off, all of the Bible is divinely inspired by the Holy Spirit. Um, The Holy Spirit inspired Paul as much as he inspired Peter. Um, When I read Paul's letters, I get the impression, in modern terms, is that he's a content creator, if if I can use that phrase, and that the Holy Spirit... Is, is inspired Paul to bring out not new but 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 deep truths if I if I can leave it there whereas when I read the book of first Peter and even um, the book of Hebrews um, or even Peter's sermons in the book of Acts um, Peter more so I think than Paul regurgitates or repeats or elucidates the direct words of Jesus so if, if Paul is a, an inventor of a wheel, Peter would be somebody who just uses the wheel really well. If I can draw that kind of rough distinction, don't shoot me for heresy. Um, Peter, uh, which makes sense, Peter spent three years following and listening and learning from Jesus. Um, and so as we walk through First Peter, there's, there's so many little phrases or verses or snippets that I'm like, that reminds me of this time that Jesus said this. And, and we're going to go through a little bit. I really appreciate John's series that he does, Finding Jesus in the Stories. Um, because all of Scripture is God-breathed. All of Scripture speaks of Jesus. I think in the case of First Peter, it's saturated with Jesus, which I think is really cool. So as I was going through this, I just thinking to myself, okay, where's this phrase found in Jesus' words? And that was a really good exercise for me. All right, so I'm going to read the section that we'll go through tonight, and then we'll jump in. Peter starts. And I might say Paul accidentally sometimes, because Peter and Paul both start with P. Forgive me if I do so. All right, verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, According to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who that God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it's tested by fire, 
may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So in this first first two verses, I want to highlight a couple of things. Um, all right, so the first thing I want to highlight is, is Peter identifies himself. Um, in my study of this, um, somebody labeled or, or, or put out there the, um, a, a liberal critique of this book might be, um, well, this can't have been written by Peter. He was just a fisherman. How can he have had the knowledge or the intellectual capability to have written this, this work? And... Um, and in our last series that John was doing on Sunday night, one of the things that, that we've talked about is trust your sources. And so um, Peter, right off the bat, identifies himself. And so who is Peter? Let's go through the list. So Peter was first a fisherman. Um, just because he was a fisherman is not to imply that he was ignorant, stupid, um, or somehow deficient in any way. That was his occupation. He was a fisherman. He was called by Jesus to be a disciple. And when I read about Peter in the Gospels, I get the impression of him. He is someone who's impetuous with his words and his actions. When, there, when a moment comes up, he's, he's quick to act or quick to talk. And sometimes that's really awesome, and sometimes that's uh, to his own downfall. And so in Matthew 14, we see the scene where Jesus is walking out to the boat, and he's walking on water. And Peter learns that that's Jesus. He, he let me, if it's you, let me come out to you. And so Jesus says, come out to me. And he walks on water. And then when he gets a glimpse of the waves and the wind, he, he loses heart and he starts to sink. He responded pretty quickly and pretty strongly with faith. And then he pretty strongly and pretty quickly lost it. That's Peter. In Matthew 16, um, Jesus is asking his disciples, who do the people say I am? You're Elijah. You're the prophet. Um, well, who do you say that I am to his disciples directly? And Peter responds, you are the Messiah. And um, it's, that's, I love that scene. That's one of my favorite scenes of Peter in the Gospels. And then Jesus responds to that by saying, Peter, you are a rock on you. The church will be built. He gives him this, this really cool blessing. And then in the very next section, Jesus is predicting his persecution and his death. And uh, Peter rebukes Jesus for that. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. So in the course of one chapter, we have Peter affirming the deity and the, the redeemerness of Jesus Christ by calling him a Messiah. And then very quickly after, rebuking that very thing that Jesus was supposed to come. He's up, he's down. A little while later, we have the scene where, where Jesus tells Peter, you're going to deny me three times. No, no, I'm never going to do that. Before the rooster crows twice, you'll deny me three times. Peter does it. He denies Christ. But then we see Peter come back up when, when Mary and the other ladies go to the tomb and they report back that Jesus is not there. Peter's the one that runs to the tomb. Him and John, they run to the tomb. John stops at the door and Peter goes all the way in and he witnesses the garments laying there. So Peter's impetuous, he's earnest, he is quick and he is bold. At the end of the Gospels, we see that Jesus reinstates Peter um, with his feed my sheep. He says it three times, feed my sheep, feed my sheep, feed my sheep. 
And then at the end of John, John 21, 18 and 19, I'm not going to read it, but Jesus um, predicts Peter's martyrdom. Um, He lets Peter know, you will suffer death. That doesn't stop Peter. We see in Acts um, some really cool sermons. One of my favorite sermons is in Acts 2, and I'll I'll read a little bit of that later. Um, But we see from Peter that he is high and he's low. Um, Even in Acts, he's got his moments. Um, Peter identifies himself here as an apostle of Jesus Christ. So what is an apostle? An apostle is um, one who is a messenger, one sent by Jesus Christ, Apostle is used to define or to, to determine or um, denote those who were first witnesses of Jesus' crucifixion and his resurrection. Um, and so Peter asserts his own credibility in this first line of why he's able to write this letter to these people in other cities. Um, again, I, I mentioned before, but somebody might say, well, it can't have been Peter. Um, and so I'm going to read from 1 Peter 2. Um, Starting in verse 21, it says, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins on his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Um, so Peter describes Christ's action here in the moment of his crucifixion. He committed no sin. When he was reviled, he did not revile. When he suffered, he did not threaten. Um, and I think that this, um, it's an intimate look at Jesus during his crucifixion. And I think the only way that somebody could have known that or could have said Jesus didn't fight back is one who had seen it and witnessed it. Um, 1 Peter 5.1 also says, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder, and then he states, a witness of the sufferings of Christ, um, as well as a partaker in the glory that's going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God. And so Peter identifies himself here again as an elder and a witness of the suffering of Christ. So I think that we can trust the source of this letter. We can trust that it is Peter, the disciple and apostle, um, the one who lived with Christ, the one who denied Christ, and the one who was set up as the rock on which the church is built. All right, the second thing that I want to highlight here in this first couple of verses is that it's written to the elect exiles of the dispersion. And then he lists five different cities. Um, These cities, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, they are all cities in the northern part of Turkey. Um, And um, one thing I read was that uh, it's the high probability that the people in these cities were Jewish descendants who had been dispersed from uh, various areas some 200 years before the times of Christ. And so Peter's written, writing to those who are strangers in a strange land, these exiles. They're, they're literally people um, who aren't living where they came from. Um, what is also interesting to me is the towns of Pontus, Galatia, and Asia are noted in um, the beginning of Acts as there's people or Jews from those cities at Pentecost. So they were direct witnesses of the Holy Spirit coming down, anointing the disciples, 
They heard Peter's first sermon in Acts 2, and then they dispersed and went back home. So in one way, you could look at this letter as it's a, a refresher to those people that Peter first preached to in Acts 2. The other thing I want to highlight um, with the idea of an exile um, is that language is often used metaphorically in the New Testament um, to talk about us. Um, metaphorical language is not uncommon. Jesus used the term asleep um, to describe one who is dead. Um, there's the little girl who's asleep. She's, she's dead, but he brings her back to life. When Jesus uses dead, he uses dead in the, the ultimate sense of being ultimately away and dead from God. Asleep just means dead in the body. So um, I think Peter uses the term exiles here to remind us that spiritually we are strangers in a strange land. We are sojourning through a time and a place that's not our home. Um, we're reminded of this in Hebrews 11, 13, and 16. Um, Hebrews 11 is the, the hall of fame, or hall of faith, really. And so he's talking about all these people. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus, make it clear they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had an opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. I'll talk about that a little bit more. The other word that I have highlighted there is the word elect. And um, in some Christian circles, the idea of being chosen or foreknown or elected by God is sort of anathema. It's, no, we have our free will. We choose and we believe in God. Um, and yet, when we read Paul and Ephesians and Peter here, we, um, we're reminded um, and even in the Gospels, too, we're reminded that we have a God who's got a commanding view of all things, all things past, present, and future. God has foreknown all who would choose to believe in him. Um, that foreknowledge is also used or described elsewhere as um, choosing to love one before it happens. Um, Acts 2.23 in Acts 2.23, Peter says, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed him by the hands of lawless men. And then we're also reminded in the first part of Ephesians, even as God chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. He says, In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. The idea of being chosen and loved by God and foreknown by God is also used in the Old Testament. Deuteronomy says, even as God chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Oh, I copied the wrong verse. Okay, that's a, I don't have my Deuteronomy verse. Um, it's used in Deuteronomy. Um, the point I want to make with this is the idea of an elect exile is one who's a stranger and yet chosen by God. Um, all people are created in the image of God and we are valuable. We have dignity before him. Um, but there is a select some who God knows and has loved in advance who will believe in him, who will receive the sanctification, justification by Jesus. We are, in some ways, the image of God plus. And I think that's a wonderful thing. All right, the next thing I want to highlight in this first two verses is that Peter 
describes for us the triune God. He, he just says God the Father, the Spirit, and Jesus Christ. Um, the Trinity, um, some have complained that it's not a doctrine that's explicitly outlined in the Bible. Um, it's a complicated doctrine. You know, if you have three gods, how can that be one God? Um, we would understand that the God, the Father, Son, and Spirit have eternally existed as one substance, equal in power and glory, separate in role and function. Peter highlights here the foreknowledge of God the Father. It was his love, his knowledge, his ordinance, his counsel before the dawn of time that predestined us in love. He highlights here the sprinkling with Jesus' blood. It is only because Jesus Christ the Son, God incarnate, because he died on the cross, that we are actually justified before God the Father. And then he highlights here the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. In the New Testament, Jesus Christ said, It is good that I go away, that the Holy Spirit would come and convict you of sin, righteousness, and judgment. So it is by the Holy Spirit that we are regenerated day in and day out, that we are made a new person day in and day out. It is all God. God is one. Yet, but God also exists as three, and it is in these three separate roles and purposes that we actually see the fulfillment of our salvation. We see, actually, the highlight of the, the Trinity um, in John 16, John 16, 7 through 11 says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. Oh, this is about the Holy Spirit. Um, it is to your advantage that I go away. For I do not go away. The help will, come, will not come to you. If I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father. And you will see me alone no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. And the last thing I want to say here is that Paul highlights that all of this is for obedience to Jesus Christ. Because Jesus died and was resurrected, he was given dominion over all creation. Therefore, the result would be that we would be obedient to him. And that's only possible for those who are foreknown, foreloved by God the Father, who believe and are justified by the Son, and find daily sanctification by the Holy Spirit. One reason I appreciate, or I appreciate Peter addressing God as triune here. Um, in John 14, uh, Jesus brings up the idea of God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Um, his disciples don't grasp that concept. Um, and so I think as, as Jesus died and was resurrected, he filled and taught his apostles at that point of the true knowledge. These things that they didn't grasp before, they grasp now. All right, so let's move on. Peter writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. So Peter starts this next section with an exclamation of joy. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he says that because he anticipates his next sentence, which is a wonderful summary of the gospel. The gospel, when we think about it, ought always to enliven in our hearts when we respond with, so that we respond with praise to God. The gospel is good news. It's the greatest message ever told. So I pray and I, um, I appreciate, too, Peter's use of the phrase God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Um, again, he highlights the triune nature of, of God. 
Jesus often referred to God as his father. And I think this is just an example of Peter mirroring Jesus' language and terminology. This next sentence, starting with according to his great mercy, it's a really long run-on sentence. And I think it's my favorite run-on sentence in the Bible. Um, I am not going to do justice to this sentence. Peter drops a lot of really, really good ideas here. And if you were to pull out a commentary, um, it, I, was, I was overwhelmed with, with how much different people have studied this piece and drawn parallels to different te- uh, texts. But we will try. This next sentence, uh, it feels a lot to me like the finale of a fireworks show. Um, it's not just one idea in a sentence. It is pop, 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 pop. According to his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection. There's all these really cool ideas. It's like, it's like a boxer going for a counterattack. You know, he's, just, he's got his combination attack, and he just keeps hitting it. So first, according to his great mercy... Peter reminds us of God's compassion and his character. And mercy is the, is the kindness or goodwill shown towards a miserable one. And it's coupled with the desire to help them. I'll say this, that we are a miserable one. We are an object of wrath and we're an enemy of God. Yet God deeply and widely expresses his compassion for us and his forbearance for punishing us. And instead he extends his grace and many blessings, foremost which is our salvation. Paul said that God demonstrated his love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God has greatly shown us his goodwill and his kindness to those who would otherwise be objects of wrath and his enemies. He says, according to his great mercy. We see this illustrated in Jesus. Jesus was compassionate. Several times in the Gospels, Jesus notes, it's noted of Jesus' great compassion and his mercy. In Luke 10, Jesus tells us the story of the great Samaritan. <clears throat> and at the end of that story, um, Jesus asks his listeners, who was the Samaritan's neighbor? And the person who answers says, the one who showed mercy. We also see Jesus' compassion shown, especially in the, the feeding of the 4,000. In the Mark account, Jesus straight up says, I have compassion on this crowd. I think that Peter has an intimate understanding of God the Father's great mercy because he saw it demonstrated constantly in Jesus the Incarnate Son. This next phrase, he has caused us. This reminds me that salvation is entirely based on God. He alone initiates our redemption. He alone instituted each part of our salvation, his love, our justification, our sanctification. The phrase he caused us, it means that there is no part that we can lay claim to or boast in our own action or merit. He alone caused us. There's no part of it that we can say, I did this, I earned it. He caused us as an example of God's great grace, his unmerited favor and power that enables our salvation. This next phrase, to be born again, reminds me of John 3, when Jesus is talking to, to Nicodemus. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. 
This is a reminder that of our own selves, we cannot cause our own rebirth. We cannot make ourselves born again. And it's not even a physical thing. This is a spiritual rebirth. The next part, Peter says, according to his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now, hope is an expectation or a desire for a favorable future outcome. Secularly, we may use this term a lot. I I hope for dinner tonight I'm going to have hamburgers. I hope for uh, when I drive home that I won't get to an accident. In the spring, the farmer says, I hope there will be rain. And in the fall, the farmer says, I hope there's no rain because i got to get my crops off. Generally speaking, though, when we use hope in that way, we lack an assurance or a confidence that it's actually going to happen. Um, In some cases, we have scientific data, medical research, right? If If we have a sickness diagnosis, we can take medicine that's got a track record of success. And we can say, I hope this medicine works, and we can be reasonably assured that it will. For the Christian, though, we have a great assurance and a great confidence in our hope in Jesus Christ because it says it's a hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It's a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We have a hope in a favorable future. We have hope in restoration and reunion with Jesus Christ. And we know and can be confident and assured that this will happen because Jesus Christ himself died on the cross and he rose again. He said he was going to die on the cross. He said he was going to raise again. And then he did it. And not only did he say it, but we have Old Testament prophecies that allude to the fact, tell us or teach us that this was going to happen. And it did happen. There is, there is nothing else that we can, or nothing more that we can be confident in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It's not just a simple assurance of the future. It's a living hope. This is a hope that enlivens our souls, that is active, that is um, filling us by God's Holy Spirit with a faith that believes that one day we will be reunioned with God. Peter explains when he, or not Peter, Paul exclaims when he considers the resurrection In 1 Corinthians 15, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Because Jesus died, we can have a confidence in that future. Not only are we born again to a living hope, but we are born again into an inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, and is kept in heaven for us. What is this inheritance? that Peter talks about. It is no man-made temporal treasure that we see here on earth. The inheritance that Peter talks about is a heavenly, glorious gift given by God through grace to his saints. This inheritance is our current salvation, and it is a promise of the restoration and reunion, communion that we get with Jesus when we're with him in glory. Peter also describes the character of this inheritance, and I think it's pretty neat that we can look at this character And we can see that it mirrors the character of our triune God. Peter calls the character of this inheritance imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Like God the Father, this inheritance is uncorruptible and eternal. Like Jesus the Son, who's our great high priest, it is pure and holy. Like the Holy Spirit, it never diminishes 
in quality or in truth. This inheritance cannot be stained, it cannot be corrupted or lessened in any manner. And it reminds me of three passages. Um, The first would be um, in Matthew 6. Jesus introduces the idea of a heavenly reward. He says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. It also reminds me of Jesus' promise in John 14. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house there are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may also be. And lastly, this idea of an inheritance in heaven reminds me of Paul's words in Romans 8. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. If you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And here's the important part. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. So I think this idea of an inheritance is a really wonderful promise. And yet we doubt it sometimes, right? I know I do. We experience things in life that um, challenge us, that cause us to lose focus on Christ. Um, I'm going to mix up a few verses here. Uh, Verse 6 that we'll read in a moment says that we are yet grieved by various trials, and he states that our faith will be tested. We may wonder in the midst of our hardships, sickness, physical distress, persecution, is this promise really true? Do we really get this heavenly inheritance? Or is this promise just a painkiller for the moment? Peter answers these questions with verse 5 right here. Who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. A couple things to note here first. God, who initiated our salvation according to his great mercy, who enables us to even believe in him, who saved us, is the one who sustains and protects and preserves us. We are guarded by God's power. We need to understand that in an earthly context, an heir to an inheritance has no assurance that he'll actually receive it, right? But the heirs to a heavenly inheritance have a twofold insurance. One, that our hope was bought in the past by Christ's resurrection, and that now in the present we are held fast, And we are preserved now and in the future by God's power. Peter recalls for us Jesus' words from John 10. He says, I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. I think this is a wonderful promise that we can hang on to. It's hard sometimes to remember that we are guarded by God's faith, power, that we get an inheritance. But in the midst of those trials and tribulations, we got to hold on to that. We need to remember when we have that. I read that. All right. So in this next verse, Peter again reminds us to rejoice. It's, he says to us, or he either rejoices or he says to us to rejoice three times in this passage. This is the second. I want us to remember that we need to rejoice in being born again. 
We need to rejoice for our living hope, and we need to rejoice for the inheritance that we get in Christ. We rejoice that our faith is protected by God. The gospel is what brings that true joy. Though now, for a little while, if necessary, we are grieved by various trials. Peter reminds us that we will experience trials of various kinds. He doesn't specify here. But we have different instances in the Gospels in the New Testament where Jesus cautions his disciples on the trials and the persecutions they'll face. Matthew 5, he says, Blessed are you when others revile you, persecute you, and other all kinds of evil against you, falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. In Mark, he says, Be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils. You will be beaten in synagogues. You will stand before governors and kings for my sake, to bear witness before them. John, it says, Remember the word that I said to you. Servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. We need to remember... Um, that God doesn't initiate trials and hardships to us, but he does allow these trials in our lives. We often ask ourselves, why do we experience trials and hardships? Why do our people have cancer? Why do our kids choose to live far from Jesus? Why are we ridiculed at work for going to church each Sunday? Why do we grieve and pour out our souls in distress and sorrow? Oh, there are things that we encounter. So that our faith would be found to be true, to be genuine, and so that we would praise and glorify God. Let's recall Jesus' words from John 9. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Trials and hardships exist because... Adam and Eve sinned, because all have sinned, all fall short of the glory of God. God uses these experiences in our lives so that his great mercy and his grace would be displayed in us who believe. They refine our character. They take us from going from the old nature full of sin to a new creation full of God's righteousness. He says that it's so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, those tested by fire, might be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. These hardships are a fire that exposes our weakness and our sin. Right here, Paul, our Peter uses an example of gold. Gold's a precious metal, right? There's a reason that we use it as jewelry. There's a reason that it is the, the physical basis for our currency, right? It's got tremendous value, especially compared to other metals. There's a... Um, Gold isn't pure by nature. It's not valuable by nature. It is mined as an ore. It's smelted to retrieve a raw gold. And then nowadays it can be refined by various methods. In Peter's day, it would have been refined by melting and removal of those impurities often over and over again. The process of purifying gold takes time. It adds value. And at the end, fully refined gold is astonishingly stable as a metal. It doesn't oxidize like iron or rust. You know, if you, you leave some metal outside after a time, it rusts away. Gold doesn't do that. It tarnishes, but it has value. In our world, it has extreme value. It even tarnishes less than silver. Yet, in the long run, gold is still a perishable item, and it can only be used to purchase perishable items. Gold will fade away in time. 
like gold, our trials and hardships last only for a little while. You know, that might be as long as our earthly life, but compared to our eternal inheritance in heaven, what's our lifespan? But just a little while. Peter says here that our faith is more precious than gold. Our faith purchases or results in something that is far more precious than anything gold could purchase. It results in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. It results in our eternal salvation. Paul writes in Philippians 3, Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things. Count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. So true and genuine faith is a result of being tested. And it endures far longer than gold. And it lasts till the end. Till we reach our heavenly home and our inheritance. This reminds me of what Paul says in Romans 8. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress, persecution or famine, nakedness or danger or sword? As it's written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. According to his great mercy, he caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We lost it all. Jesus paid it all and we get it all. And when we believe in that, we are more than conquerors. We have a faith that will be tested, that will endure to the end. Let's finish out this section in 1 Peter. He writes, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So recall that our letter is initially addressed to those who live, off in, live in far-off cities, whose only experience of Christ came from the testimony from the apostles and Paul and the other early believers. And in this, we are much the same, right? We, we know of Christ through the testimony of other believers and through the word of God. And yet, in faith, though we have not seen him, we love Jesus. And in faith, though we do not now see him, we believe in him. And for the third time in this passage, Peter says, rejoice. He describes it here as a joy that's inexpressible and filled with glory. This is the kind of rejoice that I just kind of want to shout it out. It's a big rejoice right here. We who are in Christ are only so because of God's love and his mercy and his grace. Being in Christ gives us a confident assurance in the face of any momentary temporal trial that he will hold fast our salvation, and that we will inherit eternal, wonderful, glorious reunion with Christ. Until that time, we carry forth in faith and in joy. We carry forth rejoicing that we lost it all, he paid it all, and we get it all. We get an inheritance. We get to be born again. We get a faith that endures. We can be confident that it's not solely through our own effort that we have to endure 
We are guarded through God's power. I love this first part of 1 Peter because it's a, such a deep explanation of the gospel. And it's the kind of explanation of the gospel that will light a fire to wet wood. And, uh, yeah, I love it. And when we encounter this gospel, like Peter says three times, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Rejoice, rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. So if I had a take-home message out of all of this, the first is be reminded of that gospel truth. According to his great mercy, he caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. We lost it all, he did it all, we get it all. The second thing we should take home is that when we see Christ, we ought to be so captivated by the glory of that gospel message that we are overburdened with a joy that's inexpressible and filled with glory. James says that we need to count it all joy when we encounter trials of any kind. In all things, we should rejoice. There is no condition or trial that we encounter that we should still not take time to praise and bless God for his great work in Christ. Worthy is the lamb who died on which our hope is built. And then we need to take a look at all our circumstances and we need to view it in light of the gospel. Instead of asking, woe is me, why is this happening to me? Ask ourselves, how might I display God's mercy and grace through this trial and hardship. Recall that we are also strangers in a foreign land. Our time here on earth is only for a little while. It may be 80 or 90 years if we're lucky, but that's only a little while compared to the eternal glory that we will have with Jesus Christ. We should, excuse me, we should have no expectation of easy conditions, but we should be encouraged to endure through anything. And that's all I got for tonight. I will have one homework assignment for you, actually. I want you to memorize verses 3 through 5, according to his great mercy. It's one of my favorites, and I think that if you memorize it, it will be one of those nuggets that really hold on and holds you fast through tough times. All right, I'm going to pray, and we'll be done. Blessed be our God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for knowing and loving us from eternal time in the past. Thank you for justifying us by the sprinkling of your blood. And thank you for sanctifying us by your Holy Spirit. Thank you, God, for guarding us by your power. Thank you for the inheritance that we have. We ask that you would walk with us. Give us a faith that endures. Remind us of the gospel truth when we encounter something that's hard. Help us to fall in love with you more and more as we recognize the gospel of what you did. You love sinners. And according to your great mercy, you caused us to be born again. In your name I pray, amen.